I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a woman who couldn't stop thinking about the Green River Killer when she was eight months pregnant. It's a musician who became successful by giving his music away. It's an original riot girl. It's author Rob Reed's new book in which a pop music-obsessed alien says... Paradise City is an art center. We built it on rock and roll. How do you like it? It's... It's... From Joe Pug and the Corin Tucker Band. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, a poetic wrap-up of every lesson Scott's gleaned while sitting in the audience at tonight's show, and music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Thank you, Ralph. So before we start tonight's show, I wanted to welcome KTRL 90.5 FM, Tarleton Public Radio in Stephenville, Texas. It's, it's the official station of Tarleton State University. The school's official color is purple, and their school motto, bleed purple. Carlton, we are so proud to be on your air, and we promise never to cross you because you guys are clearly not messing around. Welcome, KTRL, and thanks for having us. So later on in the show, we're going to have writer Chelsea Kane on. Um, She writes highly successful serial killer thrillers. She's going to be talking about what it's like to be a mother and tell stories about eviscerating people concurrently. Um, And it was never something that she actually gave a whole lot of thought to, but some other women seemed to be thinking about it quite a bit, so she decided to think about it a little too. Um, And I'm not a mother myself, uh, a fact which fairly recently pitted me against what I can only call a rabid mommy blogger. 
So I had the audacity to post a link to an internet browser plugin called Unbaby Me. Um, if you're not familiar with Unbaby Me, what the plugin does once you install it in your browser is that it finds all of the baby pictures in your Facebook timeline and it replaces them with pictures of puppies and kittens or puppies and kittens or cool tattoos. Um, and the thing is, it actually works, which I find hilarious. But apparently I am wrong. It is not hilarious. Uh, I posted a link to Unbaby Me on Twitter with the following message. This is what I said. All of my friends are having babies, and they're adorable, but it's a volume issue. Unbaby Me has come at just the right time. And I hadn't realized it until immediately after I did that, but I am apparently Satan. Um, <laughs> I received a message from a mommy blogger stating, this is shockingly anti-parent and anti-baby. Remember, babies are people too. And she went on to say that I was being ageist, and what would I think of an unblack me, unwoman me, or ungay me app? <laughs> and I suppose my response would be, it depends on the black gay woman of which you speak. Um, here's the thing, if her name is Caden and you're planning to post 14 pictures of her getting ready for her first day of school and 10 shots of her first banana and 18 shots of her finally beginning to understand the concept of socks, then yes, I do want an app to block photos of Caden. Immediately. Um, well, and as far as being ageist against babies is concerned, well, yes, you know what? I'm gonna come right out and say it. I prefer conversations with people who are able to form sentences, uh, people who can enjoy a gin and tonic without child services be being involved, and I also enjoy people who are not likely to poop on me because they don't like that I think the Prometheus script is flawed. Um, and, and your toddlers and elementary age kids, I have no beef with these kids. I think they're sweet and funny and I find their hope for the future endearing if somewhat misguided. But the deal is, I'm just an awkward person, and I don't know what to say to them. So when we have conversations, I just, I worry that they're judging me because I, I don't know anything about bionicles or who threw up in school today. And also, they are at the perfect angle to see all my nose hair, which makes me uncomfortable. So it's not them. It's, it's absolutely me. But before you weep for all of the poor blocked babies of the world... Just know that it's not the babies that I take issue with so much as the parents who lack photographic restraint. But let's not single out parents. If you're going to suggest other useful photo blocking apps, why not unsandwich me, unduck face self-portrait me, and unhawaiian vacation me because your lanai photos make my cube feel like prison. And as much as I love Instagram and Hipstagram, I miss the days when there were details in photos. And you didn't have to ask whether that's a person or a person-shaped chair in the corner of the photo. I am nostalgic for the pre-nostalgic photographic era. Maybe we just need an app that'll block everyone's photos but our own, so we'll never be made to feel awkward or 
like our lives aren't enough, or like terrible, shallow baby haters. We can just call it Unfriend Me. So, Corin Tucker has been called a punk rock heroine. She's one of the original Riot Girls, and she's been in some of rock's great bands. She fronted Sleater Kinney. She was in the influential and fabulously named 90s band Heavens to Betsy. And now she is in the perfect band for a woman named Corin Tucker. Corin Tucker Band. She says in their new album, Kill My Blues, you can hear a real sense of joy and abandon in their songs, and she's right. Time Magazine says the record is full of perspicacity and toughness with devastatingly poignant lyrics. Please welcome Corin Tucker Band to Livewire. Ninth grade sex ed, please find your seats. Aww. Hey, hey, hey. You know what? 
little surprise today. School board has made some exciting changes to the curriculum, and so we have brand new textbooks this semester. So let's open those bad boys up to chapter one, page 13, the female reproductive system. Are there gonna be pictures of women reproducing? You know what, this is school, Dylan. It's not some sort of internet bordello. Oh, weak. All right. So I'll get us started. The female reproductive system is a giant bipedal mutant dinosaur with rough, bumpy scales, a long, powerful tail, and jagged blue or dark purple dorsal fins. It uh, tends to... Uh, Mrs. Muldoon? Please don't interrupt, Katie. But that's like Godzilla. Uh, no. It says right here, the female reproductive system. Actually, it says reproductive system, but we know what they meant, Okay. Now, where was I? Uh, you were describing Godzilla. Uh, that's ridiculous. Continuing. The female reproductive system's signature weapon is its atomic breath. Now, this is often confused as fire breath, but no, it is not. That is pure atomic radiation, guys. It's gross. You know what, Dylan? A woman's body is a strange and terrifying thing. And you should pay attention, because this information may come in handy someday. On a, on a test or something, not in real life, because you, sir, are not an appealing person. Okay, you guys, this is just the Wikipedia entry for Godzilla with the word Godzilla replaced with the female reproductive system. All right, listen, Katie. I know we're all uncomfortable with our changing bodies, but we're just going to work through this as a class, okay? Now... On page 14, we can see the reproductive system's vast destructive power and its ability to survive complete submersion in magma. Oh, so you're saying that my vagina can survive complete submersion in molten lava? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You watch your mouth, Katie. But that's what it says here, yes. Mrs. Muldoon. You know what? This film strip should just clear some things up. Can we start the film strip, please? All right. Okay, here we go. Now here we can see the female reproductive system just terrorizing metropolitan Tokyo. It's crushing cars. Oh, here it is swatting away an F-4 strike fighter with its mighty tail. Oh, and note here it's complete immunity to conventional weaponry. Uh, Does Godzilla have a complete immunity to conventional weaponry, Katie? I totally give up. All right, you know what? Let's do independent study for the rest of the day. Read chapter two, which details the female reproductive system's role in the Great Potato Famine and the assassination of President William McKinley. Ah. Oh, and then tomorrow we'll talk about the male reproductive system. It is a perfect marriage of form and function, resembling the grace and power of an untamed mountain horse or Robocop. That was Trisha Ferguson and Andrew Harris. You're listening to Livewire, and if you just tuned in, that's unfortunate because you just missed the audio adaptation of Moominshance's earlier works. But there's still more to come. Stay tuned for serial killer enthusiast Chelsea Kane, entrepreneur and author Rob Reed, music from Joe Pug and the Corin Tucker Band, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks, Ralph. Welcome back to Livewire. Next up on the show, we have a woman whose first book was published right out of college. It was a memoir of her life growing up on a hippie commune called Dharma Girl. And she's written eight books since that one, humor books about hippies, superheroes, and even a scathing Nancy Drew tell-all. But she found her greatest success by far, five New York Times bestsellers to be exact, with the Heart Sick series. It is a brutal, smart series of serial killer thrillers with complex characters and deliciously gruesome murders. The latest in the series is Kill You Twice, and the whole series has been optioned by the FX network for a television series. She is here with an essay about the life of a thriller writer. Please welcome Chelsea Kane to Livewire. I murder people for money. I can't even keep track of all the people I've killed. I've lost count. This one time, I pulled out a woman's small intestine with a crochet hook. I've stabbed folks. I've electrocuted them. Poisoned them. Drowned them. Strangled them. Shot them. Burned them to death. Ow! And popped their eyes out. My eye! Once, I even blew up a reverend. I write thrillers. The New York Times described my work as steamy and perverse, two words I want carved on my tombstone. Like any paid killer, I meet a lot of interesting people. They come to my book events. Some of them always look a little disappointed. You seem so nice. I can tell I've let them down. I I thought you'd be more... Evil? Yes. They expect someone more steamy and perverse, I guess. Sometimes they ask questions. How do you think this stuff up? Did something happen to you that made you the way you are? How can you write this sort of stuff as a woman? And my favorite, how can you write this sort of stuff as a mother? That last one stuns me every time. I can never think of how to respond, because these are reasonable people asking that question. They're usually women, they have practical haircuts and wear glasses. They are public radio listeners, good, decent people. (laughs) I stammer something and change the subject, but it comes up again, it always does. There's that woman with the haircut and the glasses, and when she raises her hand, I know exactly what's coming. It eats at me, this question. Does what I write make me a bad mother? What would a better mother write? Sometimes there's a follow-up question. Does your daughter know what you do? Really? It's not like I'm shooting porn. True, for a long time, Eliza thought I signed books for a living because this was all she ever saw me do. 
but she is seven now and she's able to accurately describe my job. This can lead to awkward situations like the time in kindergarten that Eliza brought me up during morning sharing circle. It went something like this. My mom writes books. What kind of books does she write? Mysteries. What are they about? Serial killers. Okay, sharing time is over. Who wants to go to recess? <laughs> I don't think Eliza really knew what a serial killer was, beyond the obvious, a person who murders Cheerios. But she lives with me. She hears me talking. And sure, she's exposed to things she probably wouldn't be if I wrote children's books. Once, I found her playing with two severed hands she had pulled out of my shoulder bag. I should explain that. I buy plastic severed body parts to give out at events. I had come home from an event and I still had a few body parts on me. Eliza was making the hands talk to one another like they were dolls. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. And true, she did come downstairs a few months ago to complain that I had left fake blood on her Ken doll. But I had had this awesome idea to make a book trailer starring Barbies as the characters in my new thriller. I spent hours creating bloody set pieces in Eliza's Barbie dream home. But I was careful to clean up before she got back from camp because even I could see how entering your playroom to discover Ken dressed only in white tuxedo pants, prone on the dream home's pink bathroom floor and covered in blood could be traumatic. It turned out Eliza was just miffed that I'd been playing Barbies without her. It's worth pointing out that I wouldn't even be in the thriller business if it weren't for Eliza. I was pregnant when I got an itch to start writing about serial killers. The hormones made me do it. I started Heartsick when I was in my second trimester and finished it when Eliza was a baby in a bassinet by my desk. I would plot homicides while I breastfed. Some people worry about Eliza's fetal exposure to my work. Is she okay? No, she's not okay. She's an only child. But she's not deformed and bloodthirsty, if that's what you mean. Frankly, she's got it made. She's a mom who works at home. A mom who was waiting for her in the hall when her last bell rings at 3 p.m., a mom with a flexible schedule who can volunteer in her classroom. She has access to a world-class collection of forensic pathology books. <laughs> also, do you know how much I get paid? How do I write this kind of stuff as a mother? Giddily and without regret. Yes. I write about a depraved female serial killer named Gretchen Lowell and the cop who's obsessed with her. And yes, Gretchen slaughters people. Talk about a bad mother. Gretchen butchers people for sport. And you know what? I hope my daughter grows up to be just like her. Gretchen experiences no self-doubt. She's smart. She's a go-getter. She has a wicked sense of humor. And she excels in her chosen field. People wonder what it is that draws so many women to my books. Regular women, daughters, sisters, mothers. 
Maybe it's the elegant prose and witty dialogue. Or maybe it's just thrilling as hell to see a woman who doesn't waffle. Say what you will about Gretchen, but she knows what she wants. Most of the women we see reflected back at us in books and TV and in movies do not know what they want, whereas male characters almost always do. So when a woman comes up to me after a reading and says, I find Gretchen Lowell so inspiring. Does she mean that she admires Gretchen's skill with a scalpel? Or is she just excited to come across a female character who isn't paralyzed by self-doubt? Gretchen is a murderer, but at least she's self-aware. She doesn't apologize. She doesn't whine. Whether she is a step forward or backward for feminism, I'm still trying to work out. Let me be clear. I don't want my daughter to grow up to be a serial killer. That's a difficult and financially unstable career. (laughs) But if she grows up to be even half is self-confident and self-directed as Gretchen Lowell, then she will move mountains. I hope she has Gretchen's moxie. I hope she is able to break out of maximum security prison as easily and as often. (laughs) Most of all, I hope that my daughter gets to do something that she loves, like her mother. If there is one thing I am most proud of modeling, it's that. Don't you see how I am able to write this kind of stuff? Because life is wonderful. Because I am not afraid. Because I know that these books I write, they are just stories. And someday, when my daughter is 30, I may just let her read them. With help from Trisha Ferguson, Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and the band led by Ralph Huntley. Chelsea's latest book, Kill You Twice, is available in hardcover now. You are listening to Livewire Radio. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, proud sponsors of Feast, a celebration of local cuisine and ingredients like the antioxidant-rich grape. A single grape is pleasingly colored and aerodynamically sound, but combined with other grapes, it is truly magnificent. People in togas don't feed bunches of apricots to their lovers. Nope. Grapes. Find more information about healthy ingredients at wholefoodsmarket.com. Often, when we have an expert on the show, they leave and we find ourselves wishing we had picked their brains to help us improve whatever area of our lives they have expertise in. And tonight, best-selling author Chelsea Kane is that expert. So, please, welcome Chelsea back for a segment we're calling Disposing of Bodies with Chelsea Kane. How are you doing, Chelsea? I'm all right, thanks. Good, good, good. Okay, so here's the deal. We've got some scenarios that we're going to put to you, and you tell us the best solutions. Sound good? Cool. Uh, Trisha Ferguson has our first scenario. Yes. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. Okay, so here's the situation. Mm -hmm. I've got a 450-pound corpse in my home. Yeah. I've got 30 minutes until company arrives for a formal dinner, and I've got to get rid of the body and finish cooking. What do I do? Do you have a bone saw? Oh, my God, I do. You do? 
Okay. Are you near a junkyard by chance? Um, no. My kids' uh, body bedroom. of water. A body of water. Uh, there's a creek. That's right. a creek. Well, a creek? 400 pounds. You, we can make this work. Do you, are, are you a scuba diver? You look like a scuba diver. I, 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 I dabble. Do you have like some scuba diving weights? Oh, right? I can find some. Of a lot those. of people don't know this, but scuba diving weights are excellent if you want to sink a corpse in a body of water. You can buy these anywhere. They're perfectly legal. They Velcro on. You Velcro on several like 20 pound weights on each limb, and you want to sink then that body in, in the water. And you know you're probably going to be fine at least for the next year or two. That is awesome. Yeah. That's oh wow. Oh my god, thank you. I'm glad I could. Wow. Now here's the question: Chicken tetrazzini. Like, do I bake that at 350? Or I can't help is, you with that. Oh, damn it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, next up is uh, Sean McGrath. Hey, Chelsea. Hey. Got to cut to the chase here. Kind of a doozy. A drug deal's gone south. Now I've got two dead, one wounded, who only speaks Lithuanian. I'm in a fifth-floor walk-up in Hell's Kitchen. I've got about two hours to clean up the mess before my wife comes home, and we just installed new carpet. I've got a migraine coming on. I can feel it. And I've got a partner who throws up at the sight of blood. Oh, and it's Christmas Eve. All right. What do I do? Uh, well, take a Maxol for the migraine, and then oh, okay. I want you to take some sulfuric acid. Oh, do you boy. Have sulfur- yeah, okay. Uh, surprisingly, right. I do. Yeah. And, now, this is key with, sulf- with sulfuric acid. You want to, to put it in a container that it won't eat through because that gets very messy. So you find a container. It like won't an eat oak through. barrel? Put, yeah, put every, all of your body parts, including the, the witness. Oh, the, boy. the wounded? It's, it's for his own good. You want to you know, melt them all. Like, you want to melt them all into the barrel. Poor Yuri. Yeah. And is the, are, you, are you in New York City? Yeah. Okay, right. You're in New York City. New York City is an excellent place for really? disposing of corpses because they'll take them curbside. Oh, my God. No, they actually have, like a, they have a barrel. Amazing. Right. There's, this like, recycling, right? There's garbage, and then there's corpses. So oh, just boy. put it in the corpse barrel, and they will, they'll take it away. To fresh kill. Awesome. Thank you, Chelsea. It's no problem. Help me out. Thank you. Wow. That's amazing. I really thought the Lithuanian would live through that, but I, I guess not. Okay, this has been really informative, and I've, I've just got one uh, of my own mm-hmm. question for you. Oh, yeah, let's say I've got a body in, in my car. It's yeah. dressed like a Russian czar, and say. it's okay. been desanguinated. And oh. uh, I've saved the blood and several old milk jugs. Okay. It's beginning to smell, and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you need to take the czar to the woods right away. If you're in an area where you have bears, mountain lions, and then you want to do a shallow grave because the animals will take care of it for you. Coyotes. If not, you want to do a deep grave, like six feet. But what's key when you bury a corpse in the woods is to make sure the hair of the corpse is covered because birds will harvest the hair and use it in their nests. And that hair gets spread all over, and and it can become an important clue in a trial were it to occur at some point. Should I just shave his head before I... I would just bury him deeply. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, are are you near a pig farm? Because pig farms are also an excellent place Uh, to dispose of bodies. I live in a veritable constellation of pig farms. Perfect. You're set then. Go to the pig farm. You roll the body out the back into the pen. You're fine. Oh, wow, thank you. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy to help. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to Chelsea Kane. We'll see you next week. I hope. Chelsea Kane, everybody. With Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and Trisha Ferguson. Our next.
next guest tonight got his start in an original way. He started offering up his music for free as long as people promised to share it, and they did share it. Crowds of people started showing up at his shows around the country, and everyone knew the songs. And now music writers have taken notice of his sharp lyrics and his biting social commentary. His latest record is The Great Despiser. Please welcome Joe Pug to Livewire. know the wish list of my father I've come to know the shipwrecks where he wished I've come to wish aloud among the overdressed crowd come to witness now the sinking of the ships throwing pennies from the sea top next to it and I've come to roam the forest past the village with a dozen lazy horses in my cart I've come here to get high To do more than just get by I've come to test the timber of my heart Oh, I've come to test the timber of my heart And I have come To be untroubled in my seeking I have come to see that nothing is for naught. I've come to reach out blind, to reach forward and behind. For the more I seek, the more I'm soft. Yeah, the more I seek, the more I'm soft. And I've come to meet the sheriff in his posse To offer him the broadside of my jaw I've come here to get broke And then maybe by my smoke We'll go drinking two towns over after all We'll go drinking two towns over after all And I have come in their surplus And I have come to take their raincoats and their speed I've come to get my fill to ransack and spill I've come to trade the harvest for the seed Oh, I've come to trade the harvest for the seed know the manger that you sleep in. I have come to be the stranger that you keep. I've come from down the road 
Then my footsteps never slowed Before we met, I knew we'd meet Ah, before we met, I knew we'd meet And I've come here to ignore your cries and heartaches I've come to closely listen to you sing I've come here to insist that I leave here with a kiss I've come to say exactly what I mean And I mean so many things And you've come To know me as stubborn as a butcher Recognize my face when God's awful grace strips me of my jacket and my vest and reveals all the treasure in my chest. That was Joe Pug. His latest record is The Great Despiser. And you are listening to Livewire Radio. Our show is brought to you in part tonight by Ergo Depot, offering a comprehensive line of ergonomic work furniture. Sit-stand desks help your core stay involved while you power through YouTube videos of seal pups. (laughs) Information from the healthy sitting experts can be found at ergodepot.com. So next up, uh, we have a a guest who is a writer, and he's also an entrepreneur. He has written about the student life at Harvard Business School in year one, and he wrote about the birth of internet business in Architects of the Web, and he's actually been an architect of the web himself. He founded Listen.com, which was the online company that developed the Rhapsody Music Service. And his latest book is, is actually a departure for him. It's a novel, and it's about a subject I think we all know a lot about, um, intergalactic copyright law. <laughs> it's the story of millions of aliens, their love for American pop music, and the music copyright kerfuffle that might just cause the first intergalactic war. The book is Year Zero. Please welcome the author, Rob Reed, to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you. So I, I definitely want to talk about the book, um, but I also wanted to talk about a little bit about what led you to write the book, um, because you have some strong feelings when it comes to music and, and copyright law. When you were with Listen.com, you were actually the first company to get licenses from all five of the big record companies, which took, I th- think it was five years? Three and a half, actually. Three and a half. Yeah. That's why we were first, it's because we were so fast. <laughs> Well, why did the labels fight so hard? Well, the labels were in this mindset in the kind of 1999 and early 2000s. Uh, They were very angry at the internet. They were very angry at the MP3 format. And they tried to sue the MP3 player industry out of existence. The first mass market MP3 player to ship, Diamond Multimedia Rio, for those who are wondering, um, encountered a lawsuit that would have illegalized MP3 players, open MP3 players, had it succeeded. That lawsuit failed. 
And then the labels basically boycotted the internet for a period of four years and refused to license their music to companies like mine that wanted to sell it online. And then there was a long period, it, it, it was a kind of a deer-in-the-headlights moment that went on for a number of years, so maybe deer-in-the-headlights half-decade, um, <laughs> four-tenths of a decade, um, where they weren't quite sure what to do, but they knew they didn't like this stuff. And the line that we would get when we would go to the music labels imploring them to please, you know, your music is getting stolen in the, to the tune of billions of tracks per week. Please let us sell it so there is a legal alternative for people. And the answer was always, nobody will ever buy anything that they can get for free. Now, the interesting thing about this is you'd usually be sitting in this you know, fancy office sipping this bottled water that was shipped from the South Pacific. It costs $19 an ounce. Nobody will ever buy anything that they can get for free. And the biggest music company in those days, Universal Music, was owned by a French water company. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's talk about the book. Um, for those people unfamiliar with intergalactic copyright law, can you, can you talk about what Year Zero is about? Yeah, you, you gave a pretty good summary, but the, the basic premise is that there is this vast uh, alien civilization that is so into American pop music that they accidentally commit the biggest copyright infringement since the Big Bang, thereby bankrupting the entire universe. Um, all of the wealth of the universe is owed to us and our record labels, and as the action of the story begins, we humans don't know it. Just yet. Right. We have no idea that they have been listening to... It's a, they're, uh, they're, pirating, they're, excuse uh, me. Pirating. Sorry, they've been pirating music from a station in New York. And, and uh, so year zero is 1977. That's Nin the yep. first year that aliens actually hear American music. And that's how they realize that American music actually surpasses everything else in the galaxies. Um, so, and it's one song that they hear that, wh where they realize this. Um, so let's play the song that they hear. Welcome back. And if you're just tuned in, you're listening to Welcome Back, Cotter, and Livewire Radio. So how did you decide that that would be the universe's first universal hit? Well, I was just kind of thinking, if, so what happened was the aliens were scanning the wavelengths as they do when they're looking for new primitive civilizations that hopefully have something to say artistically. I was thinking, well, what would they come across? And I figured it would probably be, if it's the 70s, probably be WABC 1977. Really uh, powerful station Very in powerful New York. station, most popular station in that, that, that year. And, you know, they, of course they're going to pick up Cotter. Cotter was on all the time back then. Yeah. Yeah. And did What's Happening come on right after Cotter? Um, yeah, What's Happening uh, came on immediately after, yeah. But they caught that the... That was a great theme song as well. It was, but they caught the Cotter theme song first. <laughs> okay. And that became a favorite, you know. Yeah, sort of an anthem, really. It really is, yeah. Um, and, and it's not just the... I mean, they love music so much, actually, that they, um, they name some of their elements after some bands. Yeah, they, Can you talk we, about some of those elements? Well, they renamed a lot of things after elements of our, no pun intended, uh, musical culture. And so the heaviest metal in all of existence, they called Metallicam after the band Metallica. 
And um, the most energetic one, um, they ended up calling uh, uh, Slayerium after the band Slayer. They're all kind of a lot of heavy metal themes. The narrator of the book is, is really kind of into um, Bon Jovi, which he mistakes for a heavy metal band. And he's talking to this sort of metal enthusiast alien. And he's like, well, do you have Bon Jovium? Because he's hearing about all these heavy metals. And the guy just kind of sniffs. And he's like, yeah, you call it tin. It's got a... You know, because they don't yeah. consider it to be such a great heavy metal it's band. It's not a great heavy metal band. Um, well, and the great, the great thing, um, the great thing about it is that they, um, a couple of the aliens want to sort of solve this problem before all of the rest of the aliens really they would just blow up Earth to try to get rid of their debt. It's logical. Yeah, exactly. It's the it's the next logical thing. So they come to Earth and they 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 hire a copyright. A lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, and um, his name is Nick Carter. Nick Carter, and he's a terrible copyright lawyer. But one of uh, the aliens was just so excited to meet Nick Carter that yeah. So he may have, you know, he may have caused the end of the world because he was a a Backstreet Boy fan. It's a terrible, yeah, it's a terrible case of mistaken identity. The aliens, it's a self-appointed alien delegation. They're kind of bumbling. They're not that bright. Um, they feel like they need to find a human ally who's got unbelievable artistic credibility and then somebody with unbelievable political might as well. So they're thinking Bono, right? And then they find out that the most powerful media law firm on earth is called Carter, Geller, and Marx, and there's a guy named Nick Carter there, and they assume it's the Backstreet Boy, and they're like, yes, we're going to meet a Backstreet Boy and solve all this mess, and he's not the Backstreet Boy, he kind of hates the Backstreet Boys, and he's not the founding uh, partner of this very powerful law firm, he just happens to have the same very common last name right. as a family right. founding partner. Yeah. It's a very funny book. There's great little bits in there. I loved, um, and I, I, I never think about this when I read a contract, but that if you, ha- if you have a copyright contract, it actually says throughout the universe in perpetuity. Yes. And this is part of the problem that the aliens run into. They're just like, oh, they put universe in there. Yeah, it's so. um, a friend of mine. A friend of mine was in a great uh, sort of new wave pop band called Too Much Joy. And they wrote a song uh, called In Perpetuity that masqueraded as a love song, but it was all just language that they lifted from their contract. They're just <laughs> saying how his love was going to extend across all known and unknown universes and parallel universes and perpetuity of time, forward, backward. This is all out of their contract. Mm-hmm. Song Mad Libs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, it was such a pleasure talking to you. The book is Year Zero. The author is Rob Reed. Thanks so much for joining Thank you. us. Now it is time for a new segment on the show. Uh, Because we care about people and their needs and the earth and things, we decided uh, that as a public service that we were going to start answering listener questions just when we feel like it. And they can be about anything, uh, science, pop culture, religion, your kids. We have a lot of information about your kids. I hope that's not creepy. And so tonight we have a mix of questions. Some of them are from Twitter, some from our Facebook page, and some from the audience right here in the theater. And tonight they're going to be answered by our cast and our guests. So let's get started on a segment we like to call Dear Livewire. This is Rob Reed. Okay, the question comes from Joel G. If we had the technology, why would we not blow up the moon? I think this is kind of a presumptuous question because it presumes that we would not blow up the moon. I think the answer is 
if we had the technology, we would blow up the moon, which begs the question of why have we not blown up the moon? The answer is it's a lack of moon detonating technology. Now, luckily, this technology is improving at the rate of Moore's law, which is to say it's doubling in efficacy every 24 months. By the end of the decade, no more moon. Wow, excellent answer. Answer from Rob Reed there. Thanks, Rob. Next question. With Chelsea Kane and her daughter, Eliza. I have two questions from the two seven-year-olds in the audience, one of whom is my daughter, Eliza Mohan, the other is Stella Green Voss. And their questions are, do birds pee? And if you cut a rainbow, will it bleed? Number one, do birds pee? Um, Interestingly, they do not pee. They uh, excrete everything all at once. So they, they don't have bladders, and so they have three, they, they're, they're fecal matter, they have a, a milky white substance that, is, that contains the urates, and then a watery substance, which is the urine, and so that, that's what you see on the windshield, sweetie. <laughs> and if you cut a rainbow, will it bleed? Rainbows have a very low clotting factor, <laughs> and especially if you nick indigo, it, it will bleed copiously. Um, and so the trick there is to use whatever you can as a tourniquet. Take your belt off, whatever you need, and tourniquet the rainbow in the darker colored area. Excellent answer. Thank Chelsea you. Chelsea Kane. Sean McGrath. Fleurless, Fleurless on Twitter asks, My niece asked me why is the Atlantic saltier than the Pacific? Could someone explain in a not confusing way? That's a funny story. It actually dates back to 1773 when American colonists boarded British ships to protest tax policies and tossed 1,000 crates of Lord Reginald Essington Smythe's salted Earl Grey into the harbor. Not only did it hurt English morale during the Revolutionary War, not having their afternoon tea, but it forever altered the sailing levels of the Atlantic Ocean. Hope that wasn't confusing, Fleurless. Sean McGrath. Those were great questions. Great job, dear Livewire answerers. Dear Livewire is brought to you tonight by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their seasonal red ale, Red Hoptober. A beer may not seem like the 1991 espionage blockbuster, but they have a lot in common. It's, it's a deep autumny red like the Russian flag. It's sharp and punchy like a young Alec Baldwin, yet sophisticated like Sean Connery's accent. A complete dossier on this and other non-submarine-themed beers can be found at newbelgium.com. We'll be right back.
right, once again, Corin Tucker Band.
And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, poet Scott Poole has been sitting in our audience all night, watching the goings-on, and now he is prepared to come on stage to sum it all up for us. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. Sure, it's fun to drown people, pop their eyes out, drag people behind rabbit giraffes, and fillet them onto a mixed green salad with a light balsamic vinaigrette. Yes, a mass killer is the life of the party, but why isn't the mass hugger more celebrated as a horror show they really are? (laughs) Judging by the prevalence of Facebook baby pictures, I'm thinking it might not be that much longer. Don't be a fool. A swarm of hugging babies will squeeze you like a crack-addled python. Wouldn't you love to break out a corn tucker riff that was, of course, legally licensed for said purpose every time you're attacked by babies? How great would that be to beat back the puke-addled, gibberish-spouting zombies wearing bags of their own feces with the power of your sonic rock justice as they rise from the ocean drunk with the wine of radiation, their two teeth smile bared with blood coming at you in a teddy bear tsunami of unstoppable cute? Sure, they would cry. Babies always cry. But this time it would be for good reason. I just use Joe Pug as a shield to test the timber of their heart to lullaby them down to a simmering floatsome of gurgling calm. And then I'd strike. Aren't babies cute when they're sleeping? No, don't fall for it. You must take them out, man. They will kill us all. What are you waiting for? Unfriend them with your rock justice. That's Scott Poole, and that is our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, Chelsea Kane, Rob Reed, the Corin Tucker Band, and Joe Pug. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors: New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Introducing Rise and Shine, Burgerville Records' two benefit CD featuring two hours of music from some of the Northwest's best musicians. Proceeds benefit the Portland, Oregon Police Bureau, Sunshine Division, and other emergency relief organizations. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole with guest writer Ben Coleman. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bouch. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed 
and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you. 